Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger at First Baptist Church, Gulf Breeze, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. All right, open your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 23. We are going to look this morning at the famous last words of Jesus. He had seven sayings or seven words, they weren't just words, seven sayings, seven, seven phrases uh, that he, he spoke in the, the last moments of his life. And well, I'm going to look at these and, and, and ask the question, what did they mean? Why did he say them? And what do they mean to us? So let's set the stage. Um, these seven words, these seven phrases are found in three of the Gospels. Not No gospel has all of them, but they have different ones. The first, second, actually let me get this right. The first, second, and the seventh one were found in Luke, the gospel of Luke. The third one is found in the gospel of John. The fifth and sixth are also in the gospel of John. And the fourth is found in the gospel of Matthew. Now here's the reason why. Because the gospel writers were looking at the crucifixion, and actually the whole story, the the whole gospel that each of them wrote, from a different perspective. And so when you take all four perspectives and put them together, you have a much clearer picture of what actually happened. And the first one is found in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Let me paint the stage, though, of when he said these. Remember, this is these are words that he spoke from a cross. The cross was the instrument of execution called crucifixion. Now, crucifixion is not something that you and I are familiar with. We've seen stories, or we've heard stories, we've seen video, probably if you saw The Passion of the Christ, you'd have seen that. But we cannot fully grasp the horror, the tragedy, the brutality of crucifixion. This is important because these seven statements came in the midst of the most difficult time in Jesus' entire life. Moments hours before his death. Crucifixion was perfected by the Romans. It was it was so brutal, it was so horrendous that they would not crucify a citizen of Rome. They said it is too awful. It is too painful. It is too brutal for us to crucify one of our own citizens, it is reserved for outsiders. It's reserved for those who are not citizens. And even then, it is reserved for only, only for those who were the worst of criminals. It was designed to be torturous, and it was designed to be prolonged. And it was designed to suck the life out of a person slowly, sometimes happening over a period of several days. And there was a process, and again, they perfected this process so as to inflict the most pain and the most suffering without causing death too soon. Jesus, the Son of God, the name itself, God saves. So Jesus was tried in a mock court. He was placed before the powers of the day and and they tried to accuse him of something that would be worthy of execution, but they couldn't come up with anything. 
They pulled people out of the crowd, paid them money, bribed them to stand up and and give false charges. None of them were worthy of execution. Finally, they got someone to accuse him of, of being a king, saying he was the son of God. And Pilate said, you know, I find no fault in this man. I wash my hands of him, but because you want him dead, you can take him. He was trying to alleviate the guilt from himself, but the reality was he had the ability to say yes or no to crucifixion. He gave in to the charge of an innocent man. And then as we walk through that moment until the cross, we find that Jesus' um, steps, each step was painful. Each step was brutal. He would go from there into a pit. He would go from a pit to having his hands tied with leather straps and then bound to a post. And then he was whipped 39 times on his back and on his sides and on his legs. Pretty much from the bottoms of his feet all the way to the top of or to the back of his neck were just peeled flesh. And this cat of nine tails was, was a, a leather strap or, or a leather uh, whip with nine straps. And inside each strap would have been shards of glass or pieces of bone or, 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 or small parts of metal intertwined inside of the leather so that it would come down, grab a hold of the flesh, and literally rip it from the body. Often, the criminals would die from the whippings. But see, the soldiers didn't want that because they wanted to expose the back so much so that every movement would cause the criminal to writhe in pain. He was then put onto the uh, ground and a beam was strapped across his back. It would have been a large log tied on the wrist and he was forced to carry that beam through the city streets called the Via Della Rosa which means the way of suffering and it was called the way of suffering because it was the shortest path from the beating place to the crucifixion Golgotha the place of the skull Golgotha was strategically uh, placed so that it was at a crossroads so that all who would come in and out of the city through that particular gate would see the criminal being punished. It was a way of saying, don't be that guy. It was a way of warning those who would dare to come to the city, if you go against Rome, this is what we will do to you. And as they were, as he was marched throughout the city, all of the people would have come out of their shops and they would have been looking and laughing and jeering because they're a condemned criminal. So there was no more rights that he had. That was one thing that being condemned to crucifixion would get you. It would get you stripped of all of your rights. You couldn't plead the fifth. You couldn't call the governor. You could not ask for a retrial. Once you were condemned to die, you were as good as dead. It was simply a process of getting you to the grave. 
And as he marched out of the city streets up to Golgotha, the, the, pain, the, the weight was so great that even before he was hung upon the cross, his body gave out. And as he fell to the ground, that beam surely would have pressed his face into the dirt. And he couldn't move anymore. And so a man out of the crowd was grabbed. Simon was his name. He was grabbed and he said, you're going to carry the cross for him. And so Simon took the cross and walked in front of Jesus as Jesus would have limped behind. Getting up to Golgotha, the place of the skull where he would be hung upon the cross, they laid the beam on the ground and then they stretched his arms out, one and then the other. And then they took these giant spikes and they drove them through the bones in his wrist in such a way that it would hold the weight of his body but not cause him to bleed out. Again, it was surgical in nature. And it was in such a way that all of the pressure points and all of the nerve endings would, would just, with the slightest movement, would have shot pain through the body. And as they drove the spikes in his wrist... And then they drove him into his legs, into his, the, into his feet. They then lifted the cross up into the air and dropped it into the ground. Fulfilling the scripture, if the Son of Man be lifted up, he would draw all men to himself. But in this moment, we have to realize that the story of Easter that we tell is a happy story. We, we get all the way to the ending. We talk about the hope and we talk about the peace and we talk about the life the, that the resurrection gives us. But we forget that this, this moment from condemnation until resurrection, there was excruciating pain. A pain like you and I have never felt no matter what we've been through. I can assure you nobody in this room, no matter what kind of crash you've been in, no matter what kind of, of, of accident you've had, you and I have never felt the torture of the execution by crucifixion. And that Jesus, hanging upon this cross, began several hours of death. That's why the phrase sweet release of death means something. The release of death is to be away from the torture. Now we think of this, this story of the, the, the resurrection and we think, wow, this life that we have, but it was at such great cost. And, I, and I, I'm not sure we can still comprehend that the cost that was paid was not by somebody who deserved it or earned it. It was by somebody who willingly, without any reservation, took the punishment for us. It's, it's a picture of the brutality of the condemnation of sin. That God says, that should have been you. And yet, I took your place. So what did Jesus say? In Luke chapter 23, <coughs> verse 34, we have the first of his words. Luke twenty-three thirty-four, Jesus spoke these words. He said, Father, forgive them. 
for they do not know what they are doing. I don't know about you, but in my most desperate, painful times, I don't have nice words to say about anybody. And I don't know about you, but if I were hanging on a cross having endured 24 hours of this brutality and, and knowing that, that I'm at the, the, the beginning of the very end, I would not be looking at the very crowd that was crucifying me and saying, Father, forgive them. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a cuss word kind of guy, but that might be an appropriate place for one. Don't you think? Think of the anger and the resentment. Think of the, think of the bitterness. Think of all that could and should be said from a human perspective in that moment, especially knowing that the man on the cross was the same guy that not, not a week before was marched through the city streets and the whole town came out and they waved palm branches and said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna! And he's the same guy who weeks before that healed the blind and, and gave, gave life to the dead and gave um, uh, 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 feet to the lame, gave hearing to the deaf, had, take, took the mute man and gave him the ability to speak for the first time. And yet this man on the cross, going through a kangaroo court, condemned as an innocent man, his first words were Father forgive them for they do not know what they do there is something strangely unique and peculiar about Christianity and it stems from these very words Father forgive them do you know that in Christianity we have illustration after illustration of real life human people who suffer at the hands of men for the sake of the gospel and yet turn and say, I don't condemn you. I forgive you. I watched a story uh, of, of, from Voice of the Martyrs this week. And it was the story of a man who was um, captured and put into prison for his faith. And the man, the, 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 man, the man finally got out. And then the authorities arrested the ones who captured and imprisoned him. And it happened to be one of the men who captured and imprisoned this Christian was now in jail. Well, this Christian who had been released started going back to the jails to preach. And it came about where he went to the very jail that his captor was now serving time. And I watched with my eyes as these two spoke to each other because the captor came to faith in Christ Jesus because the one he falsely imprisoned said, I forgive you. Only the power of the gospel can do that. Only the power of the gospel can cause a man and a woman, a, a father and a mother, whose daughter was killed by a drunk driver, 
right out on our streets. This teenage girl's life totally taken away, far too young, far too tragic. And yet this mother and father go to the jail and say, I, we forgive you. Only the gospel does that. Only the gospel allows a man by the name of Stephen as he is being stoned by a crowd of, con, uh, of condemners. He looks at them and he says, I forgive you. It's because Jesus said it first. He said, Father, I forgive them. Father, I pray you will forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. It's not a surprise that one of the soldiers after Jesus died made this statement. Surely this was the Son of God. Because I promise you he had never seen any statement like that from the cross. In fact, quite the opposite. There were two thieves crucified with Jesus. One on his right and one on his left. The one started to swear and to curse and then said to Jesus, if you are who you say you are, if you really are a king, if you really are the savior, get us down from here. That was his attitude. That's the right kind of attitude for a cross. But there was a thief on the other side who had a different take. He actually said to the one thief, you be quiet because we're getting exactly what we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Hence Jesus' second statement. <laughs> it's found in Luke 23, 43. Just a few verses past. The criminal said to Jesus, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus' response was, Today... You will be with me in paradise. Notice what didn't happen. The criminal did not say a sinner's prayer. He did not say, dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I know you died for my sin and I ask you to come into my life and, and live in my heart and save me from my sin. I give you my life and I will live for you for all the rest of return. He didn't say that. His words as, as are recorded are these. Jesus, will you remember me? You know, there is no magic prayer. There's no, there's no, there's no certain hoop that you got to jump, jump through. The Bible says a broken spirit and a contrite heart, God will not despise. Anybody who says unto God, God, I need you, as a recognition of their own desperate need for a Savior, the Bible says that Jesus will save them. It's by grace that we're saved through faith, not of works and not of certain words. It's the attitude and the action of the heart. And notice what also didn't happen. Jesus did not respond to this thief. <coughs> yes, you're going to be okay, but you're going to have to pay a little bit for your sin. Notice he didn't say, yes, you will be with me in paradise after a period of time of working off your guilt. His words were, today, before the sun goes down, before tomorrow comes, you will be with me in paradise. 
And it makes me wonder if, if, if only you could have been there when Jesus died and when this, this crucified man died. It makes you wonder if Jesus, again, I'm just, I'm just using a little liberty here. I just wonder if Jesus didn't grab him over the shoulder and say, come on with me. Let me take you to my father's house. This was a criminal. This was not some schoolboy who just caught up in a big, got caught up in a bad crowd. He was guilty of insurrection. He was guilty of murder. He got the worst punishment possible. The, the worst of the worst get the, the, the crucifixion. And yet Jesus said to him, all is forgiven. All. Not everything but that time you were in fifth grade. Not everything except the time that you... He said, today, no exchanges, no refunds, no exceptions. Today, you will be with me in paradise. So let me just back up for a second. First two things we see Jesus say, right here in Luke chapter 23. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. A man hears that and says, I've done some awful things in my life, but Jesus, if you'll please remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now surely he was thinking to himself, I don't deserve your kingdom, but I'm just asking you to give me a little less than bad. I'm just asking maybe you'll give me just just not as, as awful of a punishment. And, and, God, and Jesus doesn't say, okay, I'll just give you a couple steps uh, in, in the higher level of hell. He says, I'm going to wipe away your sin completely. There will be no guilt in you at all. Everything you've ever done will be forgiven and is forgiven right this second. And you are clean even though you're condemned as a criminal. Your record has been blotted out. You have been given a, 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 a pass. Not because your sin has been uh, just just brushed under the rug, but because your sin is being paid for. Here, I will take your debt, I will take your sin, and I will place it on my shoulders. The first two things that Jesus said, it is finished. Excuse me. He said... Father, forgive them. And he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. The first two things that he said were statements to you and to me of the power of the gospel and the necessity of the gospel. Here's what I'm afraid. I'm afraid that we can be Christians for long enough that we forget the price that was paid. I'm afraid that we can become so familiar with the Easter story that Easter... just comes and goes and we don't feel the weight of condemnation that should be ours that was placed upon him and he said as his first two words not about me about them and then the third thing he said found in John chapter 19 this one is a little bit Peculiar. It's a little harder maybe to understand. But I think it demonstrates <coughs> the kind of love that he has. In John nineteen twenty six and 27, when Jesus saw his mother there <clears throat> and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, this is your son. And he said to the disciple, Here 
is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. That disciple was a disciple Jesus loved. That would have been John. Jesus said to his mother, Mother, I love you. And I know the pain and the grief in your heart is so great right now. But in this moment, I want you to know you are not forgotten. Do you remember in Luke chapter 2, or maybe chapter 1, when when, um, Mary is told by God... That Jesus is going to be, uh, basically Jesus is going to be uh, difficult for other people. He's going to crush other people. And then, then there's a little statement there that says, and it will be a sword in your heart. That sword that will cause her pain surely was the crucifixion of her son. Now, so many of you in this room are mothers. As a mother, I just want to, I want to take you to the crucifixion. And if you will, I want you, to, I want you to stand at the foot of the cross. And I want you to look up and I want you to see your son being executed. Surely Mary was thinking of how she held this baby... 30-something years earlier, nursed him, soothed him when he cried, maybe sang lullabies to Jesus. Mary had a little lamb. I had you, you, you. I mean, how do you make, right? And on December 25th, wake up, Jesus, it's your birthday. She would have given this kid medicine when he was sick. Would have given him Benadryl when she wanted him to sleep. Oh, you didn't do that too? Sorry. I thought that was an all-mom thing. I thought, was in the, I thought that was in the manual. <coughs> she had this concern and care. And, and this, this baby, she watched when he turned 12. Had a little hair on his chest, you know? saw listen as as his voice changed cracked puberty happened watched as his big feet had to be grown into by the rest of his body watched him leave the house go with his father and work in the shop building building furniture the joy and the pride and the hope that she had Her oldest son, her firstborn, is now on a criminal's cross. And Jesus looked her square in the eyes and said, Woman, we we say it that way, that's kind of not as endearing. Woman, right? But for him it would have been endearing. Woman, behold your son. You know, Jesus being the firstborn had the responsibility of the family to provide for his mother. It was his job, it was his responsibility by God, from God, to take care of his mother. He was transferring that care to John. Take care of my mother. 
Now, the first three things Jesus said on a cross in the midst of the most intense suffering of his life were about whom? Were totally about others. Not one time does he say, I, in those first three. He says, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive him. Mother, you are provided for. But then there's a shift. Because there's some time that passes between the third and the fourth. The fourth thing that Jesus says found in Matthew 27, 46. And here is the... Here is the one that kind of shifts probably in, in intensity of pain or it's a, it's, it reveals the shift in the intensity of his pain because he, he quotes Psalm 22. So Matthew twenty-seven forty-six. here's what Jesus said. Now Matthew records this, the, these words in Aramaic but then he translates them for us in English. About three and a half, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Psalm 22, that's the first verse. So scholars look at this and say, why did he, why did he quote at least the first verse, if not the full Psalm, Psalm 22? Psalm 22 is a psalm of vindication. It's a psalm of David who said, My life is in desperate, is in a desperate place. I am in a, in a very weak, vulnerable, hurtful place. And I'm asking you, oh God, to vindicate me. I'm asking you, God, to see me. Because even now I feel unseen. And so what Jesus was saying, <coughs> from his position on the cross was this. One, one option. Oh God, I am the Son of God, and yet I am being crucified as a criminal. Vindicate me. But more so than that, he's probably, on a theological level, speaking of the transfer of the weight and burden of sin upon him. My God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Why are you not looking at me? Because the weight of my sin, excuse me, the weight of their sin is now upon me. And from a theological perspective, the conversation goes like this. God is so holy and is so perfect, he could not look upon the sin that was placed upon his son. And so there was a separation there. Now, admittedly, scholars debate that point, but nevertheless, it means the same thing to us. There was such a, 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 a uh, such a tragic moment that Jesus felt abandoned and or alone. Now I want you to process this. The creator of the universe who said, let there be light, let there be water, let there be fish, let there be giraffes, let there be man, give him life. The one who spoke the world into existence. Colossians says that all things were created by him and through him. And in him all things are held together. He is the glue of the entire universe. 
And as that kind of powerful Jesus, he was hanging desperate on a cross. His creation had completely abandoned him. My God, my God, why am I forsaken? And the fifth thing, John 19, 28. The fifth words that he spoke probably revealed to us the depth of his humanity. Under the weight of the sin that was bearing upon him, not his, yours and mine, under the weight of, of abandonment, all of his disciples except for John had abandoned him. You would have thought that the people you gave your life to for the last three years would have at least stayed to watch and give you support. You had John and you had his mother watching him die. Where were the rest of the cowards? We shouldn't be too hard on them, actually. And as he was there, his body at this time, because it was after three, so he had been hanging on the cross for several hours, his body was completely empty. His heart would have been barely beating Blood pressure would have been tragically low, deathly low. Why? Because he had lost so much blood. His oxygen level would have been well below what a person needs to be sane and lucid. Why? Because the weight of his body was collapsing his lungs, and so he could not take a breath, and he could not exhale. Try breathing shallow for hours on end. And every time he lifted up to try to expand his lungs just a little bit, his raw back would have rubbed against the wood that he was nailed to. And he said these words. And you know, when we read these, it's so easy for us to forget because we're not there. And it's so easy to read these three words. I am thirsty. There's no way that's the way he said it. His tongue would have been swollen. And his mouth would have been so dry that he would have been gagging just to try to breathe. And from the beating that he had received from the, from the soldiers, his eyes would have been swollen shut. His nose would have been split and bloody. His lips would have been dry and cracked. You know how it happens when you, you get a, a very dry lip and you just try to smile and it shoots pain because your, your, your lips are cracked, you know? Hanging there, his, his fifth words were these. I am 
thirsty. I am thirsty. Which is ironic. Because <coughs> not too much earlier, he was at a well. And there was a woman who was there in the middle of the day because she had a seedy life. And she didn't want to listen to the other women talk. And she didn't want to deal with the men as they came around because she knew them. They knew her. She was she was used And she had no value to those around. And yet Jesus came up to her and spoke to her. That was the first thing that was odd. You're speaking to me? I'm a half-breed. I'm half and half. We have words for that. I won't use in here but that's what she was she had as much value to her community as a as a prostitute on Cervantes would have in our community you've heard the jokes right and we don't want to say those out loud but not, not a whole lot of value. From a, from a world perspective, obviously God thinks differently. But he spoke to her. And she said, you can't be speaking to me. And in the course of that conversation, here's what he says. If you would have known who you're speaking to, you would have asked me for a drink and I would have given you water that would have satisfied your thirst so that you would never be thirsty again. He said, I am the living water. And he was thirsty. Do you see how backwards that is? That the one who gives living water is now thirsty because he gave everything that he had in that moment. He had nothing left to give. He had not any, any energy. He didn't have any more, 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 uh, 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 worry. He had nothing that he could give. He had given everything. And that was the cost of you and I being made right with God. And from that moment, we know that he had nothing left. Because the next thing that he says, as found in Luke, excuse me, is found in John 19.30. He said, it is finished. I'm thirsty. I have nothing left. It is finished. The Greek word is tetelestai. It means Paid in full. Now, have you ever been in a restaurant? This happened to me. 
So cool when it happens. Sometimes we're the recipients. Sometimes we're the, the, the ones who get to do it. You ever been in a restaurant and you're eating and it's time for the bill and so you say, hey, I'd like my bill, please. And the waitress comes over and goes, it's taken care of. Well, who did it? And they look over. You had to happen to you? You look over and it's somebody over there and you, you're like, thank, thank you. You ever had that happen to you? That's pretty cool, right? They paid your bill in full. That's not what Jesus did. You see, you went into that restaurant and you were going to pay and you could pay. Otherwise, you wouldn't have gone to the restaurant. You had all you needed to take care of it. It was just somebody being nice to you. Now, that's a great thing and that's a wonderful thing and I take nothing away from that. But that's not what Jesus said when he said, it is finished. What he was saying is when you have a debt that is so large that it's all you think about when you wake up in the morning and it's all you think about when you go to bed at night and the debt, the collector, the collector, collection agency's calling and they're calling multiple times a day. They're calling your cell phone. <coughs> they're calling your home phone. They're sending you emails. They're sending you texts and they're just badgering you and it's closing your life in and you know that you cannot pay and so they call and you say, I wish I could pay you but I can't. I have nothing to give you. And then one day the creditor calls and says, oh, I'm not calling to ask you for anything. I'm calling to tell you that your bill has been paid in full. That's what Jesus did. He said, I'm paying because they can't. They can never satisfy the debt of their guilt. So I am satisfying the guilt or the debt for them. Paid in full. In that moment, Jesus had completed the work He totally and completely finished the work of making you right with God. So the only thing left from that point on was the free gift being received. And you know, if you went to God right now and said, God, listen, I know that I know that I've done wrong in my life and I know that I deserve some really bad punishment and I'm willing to go in halves with you, Jesus said, nope, can't do it. Okay, I tell you what, I'm not going to go in halves, but I'm going to work the rest of my life to make it up to you. No, can't do it. But, but I, but, but I, I just don't deserve. No, you don't. That's why it's called grace. If you try to pay Jesus back for what he did, you've missed the point. If you wake up today in the day and go, okay, Lord, I want to do something today because you paid so much for me and I just, I just want to, I just want to make it up to you. Jesus is going, you can't make it up to me. You could help a hundred ladies across the street every day. You could go feed puppies in Siberia. You could, you, you could pay the, you could pay off the, the layaway for 50 people at Walmart, Kmart, or I guess Kmart wouldn't be doing that, but, you could, you could do all these things, but it's not going to work because you cannot pay it off. I've already paid it off. When Jesus said, it is finished, here's what happened. There was a, there was a release of, 
of uh, a supernatural release, if you will, so that the heavens knew that, that this, this sacrifice was being made. Because the next thing that Jesus said, verse 7, excuse me, Luke 23, 46, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He prayed that, and then he died. This demonstrates that Jesus was in control the whole time, even in the midst of all the pain. Not once could he not have said, it's over, I'm done. And the Bible says that when he, when he, when he said, in his hands I commit my spirit, he gave up the ghost. In other words, the soldiers did not kill him. He let himself be led to slaughter. There's a difference. The, the, the courts did not accuse, the courts did not condemn him. He allowed himself to be condemned. His breath didn't just give way. He willingly gave his breath away. And when he died, the Bible says that the earth shook and the heavens roared and there's darkness all over the land and the earth split with a huge earthquake. So much so that everybody there felt it. And the soldier said, surely this must be the Son of God. Famous last words of Jesus. What does he want from you? Same thing he wanted last week. He wants you to love him. He doesn't want you to work for him. He doesn't want you to accomplish something. He wants you to love him. Because when you love him, you're in a relationship that means you're walking with him. And wherever he goes, you go. Whatever he says, you say. Whoever he loves, you love. That is what he wants from you. This morning, may I ask you a question? If you were to die today, <coughs> and you were to stand before God, would Jesus recognize you because you have a relationship? You know, it's a funny thing about salvation. We can say a prayer and still be separated from God, still be lost. Because all we do is mimic a prayer and we don't yield to Him in our heart. And then we can also not ever say that prayer and yet have yielded to Him in our heart and we're born again. And here's this funny thing about salvation. It's not something I can tell you you've done or you haven't done. Now we can look at each other's life and we can sometimes get a sense of, you know what, God's Spirit is moving inside of them. I see fruit of, of salvation. But at the end of the day, whether or not you are right with God, only you know. And so this, this moment... I believe is not by accident. I don't think you're sitting in that seat by accident. If you're here today and you're wrestling with God over whether or not you want to yield your life to Him, can I just ask you a question? What's keeping you from doing that? Now, whatever you say is keeping you from doing that, 
I can boil it down to what the Bible says. It's pride. It's the same thing a two-year-old does. I can do it on my own. I love you enough to tell you, you cannot do it on your own. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. But God demonstrated, He proved His love for us in that even though we were still sinners, even in the midst of our ugliness, Christ Jesus hung on a cross, made those seven statements, and then said, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for it is easy and my burden is light. This morning, I'm asking you to trust Jesus. You say, well, I've already done that. But man, my life sure isn't where it needs to be. Well, that's a good place to start for you then. Start with what he's saying to you today. Just say yes. Will you stand to your feet? Father in heaven, I pray that these next few moments before we leave today, they'd be holy moments. Lord, I believe that somebody in this room is wrestling with you. God, they've not yet surrendered their heart to you. So, Father, my prayer is that you would bust through the pride and help them to yield to the love that you have. For, Father, you have come to rescue us. So this is my prayer in Jesus' name. Find out more about First Baptist Church, go freeze at FBC, go freeze.